Hey, it's time for Security Now. I'm Ant Pruitt, sitting in for Mr. Leo Laporte while he's out enjoying a Green Bay Packers game. <laughs> that is still so funny to say. This week, I'm sitting with Mr. Steve Gibson as he goes through some interesting news here in the world of cybersecurity. Uh, we have the NSA hacked Huawei. Well, yeah, several years ago. Is that really news? We also take a look again at what's been going on with LastPass and some of the the implications regarding their previous breach. And also, that algorithm doesn't quite add up. <laughs> Y'all stay tuned. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Security Now, episode 941, recorded Tuesday, September 26, 2023. We told you so. This episode of Security Now is brought to you by Delete Me. Reclaim your privacy by removing personal data from online sources. Protect yourself and reduce the risk of fraud, spam, cybersecurity threats, and more by going to joindeleteme.com slash twit and using code twit for 20% off. And by our friends at IT Pro TV, now called ACI Learning. ACI's new cyber skills is training that's for everyone, not just the pros. Visit go.acilearning.com slash twit. Twit listeners can receive up to 65% off an IT Pro Enterprise Solution Plan after completing their form. Based on your team's size, you'll receive a properly corded discount tailored to your needs. And by Melissa. More than 10,000 clients worldwide rely on Melissa for full-spectrum data quality and ID verification software. Make sure your customer contact data is up-to-date this holiday season. Get started today with 1,000 records cleaned for free at melissa.com slash Hey, what's going on, everybody? I am Matt Pruitt, and this is Security Now here on Twit TV with the one and only demand of the hour or a couple hours, Mr. Steve Gibson. How you doing, sir? <laughs> yes, I think we could probably fill our listeners' time with a couple hours of all kinds of neat security information and news. Uh, and this <laughs> week, we are, you know, no exception, we are chock full of questions. Oh, yeah. Uh, why is my new Validrive freeware not published yet? Why did Apple quietly remove PDF rendering from the Mac after 39 years? Has the NSA been hacking China? What mistake did Microsoft recently make that would require the use of a bigger hard drive? Uh, why did Signal just announce their use of post-quantum crypto? Uh, you know, what's the big hurry? Uh, is it possible to create a new web browser from scratch? And if not, why not? Does public key crypto really go both ways? Can pure math generate pure random numbers? One of our listeners believes he has. Could encrypting an entire hard drive, then throwing away the key, be used in place of random noise wiping, which is what I'm a big fan of? Why hasn't the Unix time problem been fixed yet? Or has it? Uh, will all of the stolen LastPass vaults eventually be decrypted? Uh, am I really leaving Twitter? And finally, why in the world is this episode titled, We Told You So? The answers to those questions and more will be revealed by the time we're done here today. Welcome to episode 941 of Twit's Security Now podcast. 
Oh, man, this is going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> and I got to tell you, um, I'm looking forward to that last past discussion because I have some thoughts and I'm sure you're going to set me straight Great. as well as set everyone else straight here uh, on, the, on the show. Uh, and for, for folks that are tuning in and, and thinking, wow, Leo's voice is really different or wow, boy, he's got a super tan going. No, Mr. Laporte and the family, they are out of town uh, having a good old time up in uh, Lambeau Field or actually Green Bay, Wisconsin, uh, having a good time. Birthday celebration with some um, with some with their son, as well as some local Twit fans are there in town, too. And they're going to hang out together. It's going to be a good time. So if you're in that area. Be sure to go by and say hello. Uh, I'm going to hang out today and get 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 as much knowledge as I can from Mr. Steve on all of this this uh, infosec stuff because it's always fascinating. But before we do that, I want to go ahead and take a few moments to thank our first sponsor of Security Now. Uh, today, this episode of Security Now is brought to you by Delete Me. Uh, have you ever searched for your name online and didn't like how much of your personal information was available just floating around out there? Now, did it make you feel exposed or, or unsafe? Since 2010, Delete Me has been on a mission to empower individuals and organizations by allowing them to reclaim their privacy and help them remove their personal data from online sources. Their team is driven by a passion for privacy and commitment. Uh, to making it simple for customers to use. Delete Me helps reduce risks from identity theft, credit card fraud, robocalls, spam, cybersecurity threats, harassment, and all kinds of other unwanted communications overall. Delete Me is the most trusted privacy solution available, helping thousands of customers remove their personal information online. Now, did you know that the average person has more than 2,000 bits of data about them online that Delete Me can find and remove. That's key. Now think about how much time that saves you trying to filter and find all of that stuff. Oh, this is a good service. One customer said, quote, I signed up and he took it from there. Awesome service, already seeing results, end quote. And I have used Delete Me and they gave me an account to try out. And I got to tell you, it is the simplest process. You literally just pop in and fill out a form and give them a, just a little bit of information about yourself. Hit go. Boom. And they're off to the races looking for all of that crazy stuff online that's attached to you. So let me tell you exactly how it works here. First, you sign up and you submit basic personal information for removal from search engines. OK, uh, the next delete me experts will then find and remove your personal information from hundreds of data brokers helping to reduce your online footprint and keeping you and your family safe. So that's another thing. It's you and your family. You may have an online account out there somewhere, but it may also be tied to your spouse. So not only are you getting spammed, but your spouse is getting spammed for some crazy stuff you done done. Delete Me is going out there to help clean that stuff up. Now, once the removal process starts, you'll receive a Delete Me report within seven days. And it doesn't stop there. Delete Me will continue to scan and remove personal information every three months or so. And with automated removal opt-out monitoring, they will ensure records don't get repopulated after they're being removed. So tricky, people. Oh, so tricky. Now, this includes names, addresses, photos, emails, uh, relatives, uh, phone numbers, social media, property value, and a whole lot more. As data broker industries evolve, 
Delete Me continues to add new sites and features to ensure that their service is both simple and uh, effective in removing personally identifiable information out there. And since privacy exposures and incidents affect individuals differently, their privacy advisors ensure that all of their customers have the support they need when they need it. Now, this is my call to action to you, the wonderful Twit listeners. Protect yourself and reclaim your privacy by going to joindeleteme.com slash twit and then using the code twit. That's joindeleteme.com slash twit and code twit for 20% off. We thank Delete Me for supporting us here at Twit and for sponsoring this episode of Security Now. All right. So, Mr. Steve, what's going on now? What, what, what you got for us today to start the show? Well, we also, we, all, we always have a picture of the week. So, uh, this week's no different. This one is a six-frame cartoon <laughs> which shows the evolution of a particular well-known product category. Uh, this is a toaster. So, we have the original toaster in the first frame, which, you know, it's got a little handle on the side, and it makes toast. Now, Perfect. We're, we're going to then, <laughs> right, exactly. Unfortunately, that's probably the optimal condition for the toaster, because then the next frame, it's been Wi-Fi enabled. So we've got a screen on the side showing an hourglass. This <laughs> makes toast after making you wait for a firmware update. So not clear that was actually a benefit. Then we move to the data-driven toaster, which makes toast by watching how you like toast. (laughs) Then we evolve to the toast as a service, which makes toast for $5.99 a month. Uh, and there's a screen on the side of this toaster that says log in. So that's right. Now you gotta, you gotta log into your toaster in order to, you know, brown your bread. Uh, the fifth frame here is the ad supported toaster. It's got a larger screen because it wants to make sure you see the ad and it makes toast and lets you know that Smuckers is on sale today. And finally, in the final frame of this, we've got the AI-enabled toaster. Uh, it's got that red glowing eyeball from the ha- the HAL 9000 of space. No, not space. No, the, the uh, Hitchhiker's Guide? Is that the one? No, no, no. It's a... Uh, uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Oh, thank oh, you, John. Of course. Thank you, I, Mr. I, Jammer B. I and knew, thank you, I knew. chat just, room. They got just it. Just blanking on it. <laughs> anyway, so 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 this AI enabled toaster is actually responding to us. It says, "Toast? I'm afraid I can't do that, Dave." <laughs> so, yes, not exactly an advance as far as toast goes, which sort of tells you sometimes you just need to keep the microprocessors away from your appliances because there's no real value to be added there. What's so funny is I'm looking at those images and. As you're going through each cell, my brain is automatically assigning a big tech company to each cell. It's, yeah. it's, it, it fits a lot of them quite perfectly. For example, you know, the ad supporter as a service could clearly be Amazon easily. 
you know. Right. right. But anyway, what's going on with value dri- Valley Drive, sir? Valley Drive. So I've received messages from listeners who are anxious to start testing their various USB flash drives with GRC's forthcoming Valid Drive freeware utility. Uh, you may not know, Amp, but it turns out that there are a lot of counterfeit or fake flash drives now on the market. Oh, they, yeah, uh, I've heard. They've, Amazon, they've made them super fast, supposedly, and there's nothing in there but some standard, uh, uh, like a V9, V90 chip in there. Right. Which should be there, something there, better. There, there is that. And also the, the, the big problem is thumb drives that claim to be one or two terabytes but only have a 32 gig chip in there. And, and what's diabolical is that the memory is on the is at the beginning of the drive where the file system is. So it looks like it's formatted. You can even be storing data there. And, it, and, and so the file system is there. And, of course, the, the, we actually heard a story where, where someone purchased a, and you'll appreciate this as, as a photographer, uh, got a, um, a compact flash card that, that was counterfeit, stuck it oh. in their camera, took wedding photos throughout all of the wedding process, came back, the photos were not stored because uh. that all of the all of the, um, the the file system file names were there, but but out actually out in the drive's real estate there was no memory. So if oh. the camera thought it was writing them, but they were not actually being recorded. Oh. So anyway, so you know as is usual for me. This little side project is taking longer than I expected. I announced it a couple of weeks ago, I guess like three or four weeks ago. Um, and since I paused the completion of Spinrite 6.1, right on the verge of getting that finished, I do feel a great deal of pressure to get Valid Drive finished and back to work on Spinrite. But I don't believe that I'm going to look back and feel that this was a mistake. All of my previous low-level drive work has been in DOS, where, of course, Spinrite still lives. Um, and in DOS, it's possible to own the entire machine. It turned out that Windows USB chain fought back and interfered with Drive's operation much more than I expected. So getting this done correctly was quite involved. But... It has made Drive unique because it now incorporates a bunch of technology that's not available elsewhere. And along the way, I've developed a lot of new code that's going to be very useful for future USB work under Windows, like for GRC's secure drive wiping utility, which will happen in the future. You know, and all that, although that doesn't ha- doesn't help us today, it will in the future. And, you know, I always take the long view since I plan to be around and active for quite a while yet. Please so, and thank you. <laughs> today, Drive appears to be working well, and it's being heavily tested and used by GRC's testing group. It has opened my eyes about just how severe this fake USB drive problem has become, while none of us were really paying that much attention to it. So I'm not quite ready to turn it loose because once it's finished, I don't want the distraction of needing to keep coming back to fix little issues that I ignored out of a rush to publish. Um, you know, I want to get back to Spinrite 6.1 and then immediately on to Spinrite 7. So little things like not saving its reports properly on screens where Windows font sizing is set to other than 100 percent 
or some of its UI text not appearing when a user screen is set to high contrast mode, or when a user may be unable to discern um, closely similar colors clearly. You know, they've got a little bit of a color blindness problem. Anyway, those are details that I need to put behind me so that what's published will be finished and probably useful for years to come. Anyway, I also mentioned creating and saving reports. So yes, there's been a little bit of feature creep along the way. It's a little more than I had initially expected to get finished. Anyway, it's become mm-hmm. very nice and it's a useful utility, which I'll formally announce and publish as soon as possible. Anyway, so I just wanted to get that out of the way because people have been saying, hey, where is it? it you know, so it's, it's all working well and it's coming soon. Outstanding. So um, the... The Eclectic Light Company uh, posted a blog entry that had an interesting piece yesterday, which they titled Postscript's Sudden Death in Sonoma. Now, they don't mean Sonoma, California. Well, actually, Apple was referring to Sonoma, California. But Mm -hmm. in this case, Sonoma refers to the major Mac, the most recent major uh, Mac OS release. Um, and their article has some interesting observations about PostScript as a dangerous interpreter, which shouldn't surprise any of our listeners. So I want to share what they wrote, and I'll comment, you know, a little bit uh, in line and on the other side. They said, if there's one language that's been at the heart of the Macintosh for the last 39 years, it's PostScript the page description language developed by the founders of Adobe, the late John Warnock, and Adobe's team of engineers. It brought the Mac's first commercial success in desktop publishing, in PostScript fonts, and early PostScript printers, including Apple's game-changing LaserWriter. Although Mac OS X never inherited NextStep's display PostScript, its descendant, Quartz, and Core Graphics are still based on PostScript's relative which is the uh, PDF. So just to be clear, it's PostScript, which is the issue here being discussed, not PDFs per se. PDFs are still around and obviously in heavy use. Mm-hmm. So, so they said, following a short illness <laughs> that started in Mac OS Monterey 12.3, PostScript has died suddenly in Sonoma. The first sign passed almost unnoticed in Apple's release notes to Mac OS 12.3, where it recorded the so-called deprecation of PostScript in WebKit. They said, Apple said, support for inline viewing of PostScript files is no longer available. So that was just sort of like in passing in WebKit, but it sort of did indicate where things were headed. Then in Mac OS 13.0, Preview lost the ability to convert PostScript and EPS files. Apple said the Preview app included with your Mac supports PostScript.ps and encapsulated PostScript EPS files in Mac OS Monterey or earlier. Starting with Mac OS Ventura, PostScript, I'm sorry, Preview no longer supports these files. So again, a little more deprecation of this. They Mm -hmm. said, other apps that can view or convert .ps and .eps files are available from the App Store and elsewhere. Finally, uh, wrote the blog, the complete removal of support for PostScript and EPS was recorded as another deprecation 
in the release notes for Sonoma. Okay, so postscript they compl- they finish saying is an old stack based interpreted language designed at a time when code security had barely been conceived and malicious software hardly existed. Among its attractive features is the fact that any PostScript object can be treated as data or executed as part of a program and can itself generate new objects that can in turn be executed. Okay, now I'll just pause here for a minute to observe Mm -hmm. that Windows metafiles, which turn Windows drawing primitives into an interpreted format, originally had that same capability of executing code. That's just the way things were done back then. Um, When this was rediscovered many years later, everyone freaked out, thinking it was a horrific bug. And many people thought that I was nuts when I calmly observed that it was clearly originally deliberate. You know, it's definitely a bad idea today because so prone to abuse. But it was entirely reasonable at the time. Everyone just forgot it was there. You know, as this article says, PostScript is an old stack-based interpreted language designed at a time when code security had barely been conceived and malicious software hardly existed. You know, exactly. Yeah. So I'll just make one other note. Although stack-based languages can be brittle, back at the time, defining a stack-based language was a terrific choice by Adobe because stack-based representations and interpretations can be incredibly dense and efficient. And that's what you would want in a page description language where there are effectively no processor cycles and no easy memory. So, you know, PostScript's design was brilliant. So anyway, their, their article continues, more recently, security researchers have drawn attention to the fact that PostScript is a gift for anyone wishing to write and distribute malicious code. As it's effectively an image format, embedding malware inside a PostScript file could enable that to be run without user interaction, as is the case with other graphics formats. You know, you just, you know, any kind of preview will will in, in, uh, cause that, that file format to be interpreted. And we've seen exactly that happening in the not-too-distant past. Right. The, art, the article says there are three major PostScript interpreters today in common use. There's still Adobe's Distiller engine, which is built into its Acrobat products. There's Apple's PS Normalizer engine, which is built into macOS, and Artifex's open source engine built into GhostScript. Um, And that's the one that's widely used in Linux and other platforms because it's open source. They, They wrote, research into those engines has so far been relatively limited, but has revealed some serious vulnerabilities. Most recently, Kai Lu and Brett Stone Gross of Zscaler's Threat Labs published an account of three vulnerabilities they found in Distiller and one in Apple's PS Normalizer. That was in 2022. 
Those were fixed by Adobe and Apple last year. In the later case, in Mac OS Monterey, which was version 12.5, released on the 20th of July of last year, 2022, and its equivalent security updates for Big Sur and Catalina. You know, they had to push those back also. Um, and from the dates, I suspect that the removal of support for inline viewing of PostScript files in WebKit in Monterey 12.3 may also have been part of Apple's mitigations. Anyway, they wrote, Apple was most probably prompted into conducting a security audit of their PS normalizer as a result of the vulnerability that w- which was reported and would have been faced with the choice of either re-engineering it or removing it from Mac OS completely. It was, the, the problem is it was just too dangerous as it was. Um, and and these, these guys note, unlike the PDF engine in Quartz, PS Normalizer is now little used and has no significant role any longer in Mac OS. So, I mean, that's, that is a reason to remove something that is de- inherently dangerous. So the first step was to make it inaccessible from the GUI by disabling the feature in Ventura's preview. Then following that in Sonoma by removing PS Normalizer altogether, so removing its command tool, which is PS to PDF, and the Core Graphics uh, CGPS converter. This leaves those still wishing to convert PostScript files with a choice between Adobe's distiller, which you would have to pay for because it's in their Acrobat products, or Artifex's GhostScript, you know, and... To be fair, it's, that's had its own share of vulnerabilities. Again, this is not, you know, PDF is a fundamentally dangerous format. It is not easy to get it right because it is so old and is so complex. And Oh, and, they, and the article did mention there's also a third option, which would be to run a late version of Mac OS Monterey, where you still have PostScript, in a lightweight virtual machine. Uh, and that way you could continue to use Apple's PS Normalizer through preview there. And, you know, for most people, that would probably be the cheapest and simplest option. Um, anyway, John Warnock. You know, the co-founder of Adobe and the driving force behind PostScript died on the 19th of August this year. And his page description language had brought success to the Mac for almost 39 years. And even though uh, he hasn't, though, the PDF format has lived on. So anyway, uh, to, to Apple, I say bravo. It is always difficult to kill off features that have any audience, right? Somebody's using it. Somebody's going to be unhappy. Um, And as we've seen through the years, Apple takes some heat whenever they decide to break the status quo in the interest of a better future. PostScript, as I said, is a big, old, and very dangerous interpreter. There is no doubt that some people will complain. That's inevitable. But the fact that something that's inherently dangerous could be removed with relatively little repercussion suggests that Apple has once again made the right call. So, yeah, I uh, I just wanted to point out that it's gone from Mac OS uh, uh, and, you know, PDF is still there, but not but not sort of the underlying PostScript interpreter. And that's, you know, that's certainly best. You referenced just some of the issues that we've had and known about over the years with PDF format. Um, and yet we still continue to fight uh, to get those squared away, but it's still a problem. Are there any alternatives 
for a PDF. Uh, I mean, we can't necessarily say TIFFs or, or PNGs or anything like that. Everything is, is fairly uh, open to being compromised. Uh, do we have any other options out there for something that's going to give us the same performance and reliability uh, of a PDF? Well, it's yeah, it, the, the, the problem is that, you know, image formats are not a replacement for a page description language. The reason we have well, the, the reason you're looking at a PDF of the show notes is that it's you know, it is the show notes captured in a in a, basically in a printed format, and that's what makes the, the 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 PDF format unique. It also is not easy to do, which is what makes it complicated. And as we know, complexity is the enemy of security. So if yeah. something's going to be complex, there's probably ways to hack it. And it's probably a hole it, so. somewhere, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, has the NSA hacked Huawei? And the answer is, well, uh, yeah, back in 2009. What's weird is that last Tuesday, China's Ministry of State Security published an extremely rare, you know, as in extremely as in the first time ever, official statement on its WeChat account. It formally accused the U.S. National Security Agency of hacking and maintaining access to servers at Huawei's headquarters since 2009. Now, okay, what's interesting is not that this is news, it's that it's not news. So I'm mentioning this because this reflects a relatively sudden change in stance for China, and it suggests that this might just be the beginning. The question is, the beginning of what? Both the New York Times and Der Spiegel originally reported this back in 2014, based upon documents from the Snowden links, which disclosed a program called Shot Giant, which was an NSA operation to compromise, to compromise Huawei's network for the, um, uh, for the purpose of finding links which existed between, or they thought might exist, between Huawei and the Chinese PLA to learn Huawei's internal corporate structure and also to identify ways to exploit Huawei's equipment, which at the time was being widely adopted in both the U.S. Uh, and by our allies and adversaries. So this is the first time the Chinese government has ever publicly confirmed the NSA's Huawei hack, and they posted it on their WeChat channel. So sort of seems more political than not. The Chinese Ministry of State Security statement didn't go into any technical details about the actual hacking. You know, like they apparently didn't know any more than we've all known since 2014. It just recycled information that was published by the New York Times and Der Spiegel and the Snowden leaks. It does, however, spend a lot of time accusing the U.S. of using, and believe it or not, I'm quoting this, quote, the despicable tactics of the matrix to maintain a cyber hegemony. So to that end, Chinese officials claim that the U.S. is doing all of the intellectual property stealing and then using its allies and PR machine to hype, exaggerate, and smear China on, quote, Chinese cyber secret stealing issue, unquote. So... Uh, a cyber threat analyst at the Taiwan-based security firm uh, Team T5 was quoted saying, 
quote, considering the close relationship between China's cybersecurity firms and the Chinese government, our team surmises that these reports could be part of Chinese, I'm sorry, of China's strategic distraction when they're accused of massive surveillance systems and espionage operations. So, you know, there have been other, there, there, there have been several other recent reports of NSA penetration into China's space, uh, you know, in, in, into their networks. And I suppose none of us assumed that the cyber intrusions were all going one way, you know, like that there was no pushback against, you know, China's mm-hmm. much publicized intrusions into the U.S. You know, we have an NSA and all of those people dressed in camo must be up to something. So it seems as though the Chinese government may have changed their policy rather than pretending to be invulnerable. They've decided that the better strategy is to acknowledge that the U.S. is also intruding into Chinese affairs. This might also be a reaction to China's very high profile and heavily publicized intrusion into Microsoft recently and their Uh. exploitation of their access uh, uh, of their access to enterprise email. Uh, But there does appear to be a difference. The evidence we have suggests that when we get into their networks, we just snoop around to gather intelligence. When we get when they get into our networks, proactive damage results. So, I mean, it's not just espionage, it's attacks. Um, as we Heck, recently depends saw- on who you ask, that's either way is still an attack. Yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 just because yeah. I didn't come in there and break something that still doesn't say that that um, oh no they're less, cer- less wrong they're, than they're you. certainly not happy to have the nsa you know uh, uh establishing a persistent presence in in within their their country's uh internal private networks um as we recently saw that chinese attack on microsoft took a great deal of effort you know and that demonstrated that they have some serious cyber skills but sometimes you just trip over a pot of gold that was the case when a misconfigured Azure shared access signature, a so-called SAS token, resulted in 38 terabytes of Mm. hypersensitive Microsoft data being exposed, not just for the taking, well, for the taking, but more than that. Okay, so what happened? A cloud security-focused group known as Wiz Research. Uh, and just to note, that's not Wiz. You know, there's no H. It's just Wiz, as in wizard. Uh, they stumbled over a trove. And I mean trove as in we're going to need a to get a bigger drive over here. <laughs> wow. Trove of Microsoft data. It was all exposed and sitting there out on the Internet. The Wiz Wizards explained, they said, As part of the Wiz Research team's ongoing work on accidental exposure of cloud-hosted data, the team scanned the Internet for misconfigured storage containers. In this process, we found a GitHub repository under the Microsoft organization named Robust Models Transfer. And, you know, as an aside, it sounds like maybe the models were robust but the security was not so much. 
They said the repository belongs to Microsoft's AI research division, and its purpose is to provide open source code and AI models for image recognition. They said readers of the repository were instructed to download the models from Azure from an Azure storage URL. Okay, so that sounds kind of deliberate, right? Like, that doesn't sound so bad. But, okay, now we're getting to the bad part. They wrote, this URL allowed access to more than just open source models. It was configured to grant permissions on the entire storage account, exposing additional private data by mistake. They said our scan, and actually they did a little more than scanning. We'll get to it in a second. Our scan shows that this account contained 38 terabytes of additional data, including Microsoft employees' personal computer backups. Oh, boy. The, the backups contained sensitive personal data, including passwords to Microsoft services, secret keys, and over 30,000 internal Microsoft Teams messages from 359 Microsoft employees. And that's where you say, whoopsie. Um, now, it occurs, it also occurs to me from this report that, you know, you don't know that there are 30,000 internal Microsoft Teams messages from exactly 359 different Microsoft employees without doing a great deal of data analysis and right. counting things. I mean, if you've got 38 terabytes of data, you you know, you got to dig around in there. They yeah. also knew that there were there were employees' personal computer backups and that those backups contained sensitive personal data, including passwords to Microsoft services and secret keys. So, wow. Uh, as I said, they probably did need to get a bigger drive to hold all of that. Unbelievable. I know. <laughs> so the report continues to explain, in addition, they said, to the overly permissive access scope, the token was also misconfigured to allow full control permissions instead of read only meaning not only could an attacker view all the files i know in the storage account they could delete and overwrite existing files as well in other words you know change anything they wanted okay now wait a minute can you imagine the attacker showing up and and, and getting in and was like Yes, just oh. Just, oh. just celebrating. It's like yeah. this can't be this this easy. Like I said, oh. the, the 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 Chinese cyber attack that that got a hold of Microsoft's uh, uh, corporate email that required some skills. Right. Here, Microsoft literally left the door open. Doors open, and and really, <laughs> you know, these guys said. Meaning not only could an attacker view all the files in the storage account, they could delete and overwrite them. But, you know, this really does cause us to question the use of the term attacker here. If you, <laughs> if you pick up a lost USB thumb drive in a parking lot, have you attacked anyone? It seems to me you're just, you're just observant, right? You just, you just saw the drive sitting there. So if Microsoft is waving their arms around and saying, hey, come over here and download a bunch of stuff using this URL, 
Oh, and while you're here, how would you like to read 30,000 pieces of private internal corporate communications from 359 of our employees and poke around in some of their computers' backups? You know, does that qualify as an attack? If you say, well, thank you, that does sound interesting. Microsoft has a weird way of doing honeypots. Wow. <laughs> so anyway, uh, these these whiz wizards said this is particularly interesting considering the repository's original purpose, providing AI models for use in training code. The repository instructs users to download a model data file from the SAS link and feed it into a script. The file's format is CKPT, which is a format produced by the TensorFlow library. It's formatted using Python's pickle formatter, which is prone to arbitrary code execution by design, meaning an attacker could have injected malicious code into all the AI models in this storage account, and every user who trusts Microsoft's GitHub repository would then have been infected by it. In other words, this could have been, like, really bad. Mm. They said, however, it's important to note this storage account wasn't directly exposed to the public. In fact, it was a private storage account. Here's what happened. The Microsoft developers used an Azure mechanism called SAS Tokens, which allows the creation of a shareable link granting access to an Azure storage account's data. This means that upon inspection, the storage account would still seem to be completely private. But as we now know, it was anything but. In Azure, a shared access signature, SAS token, is a signed URL that grants access to Azure storage data. The access level can be customized by the user who creates the URL with permissions ranging from read-only to full control, while the scope can be either just a single file, just a container, or an entire storage account. And as we know, that's what happened here. The expiration time is also completely customizable, allowing the user to create never-expiring access tokens. This granularity provides great agility for users, but it also creates the risk of granting too, too much, much access. In the most permissive case, as was the case with Microsoft's token above, the token can allow full control permissions on the entire account forever, essentially providing the same level of access as the account key itself. So, okay. We could be glad, or at least hope, that adversarial cyber attackers did not stumble upon this. We can be glad that the Wiz Research guys did, and that they promptly, after doing apparently a bunch of counting to see just how much of what was there, gave Microsoft a heads up about this little misconfiguration mistake. And I noted that Microsoft's own Microsoft Research, you know, MSRC blog posting for this incident was titled, gotta love this, Microsoft Mitigated Exposure of Internal Information in a Storage Account Due to Overly Permissive SAS Token. 
Okay, right. Overly uh, permissive. You know, overly <laughs> permissive. And they mitigated the exposure. Wasn't that nice? <laughs> I won't spend any more time on this other than to note that in Microsoft sharing of what they called their learnings, yes, they actually did call it that, their learnings from this, they never got around to mentioning just how much of their highly sensitive data had been flapping in the breeze. Well, of course they wouldn't, because that's how big tech works. That's how big corporations work. Yeah, right. we had an attack, so let's just just keep this story as minimal as possible. Yep. You know? Okay. Oh, man. One more story, then we'll take a break. Um, All right. Signals PQXDH, quantum-resistant encryption. Now, the Signal encrypted messaging platform was originally named Axolotl, believe it or not. Wait, what? A -ax <laughs> yes, that was. It was called Axolotl. I'm -ax glad they had a branding meeting. <laughs> Axolotl, which still seems like it's missing some vowels or something. Axolotl. <laughs> they called it that. It's named after a newt. N-E-W-T, a newt, which has self-healing powers because the Signal protocol has some of that. In some ways, Signal, which uses a resynchronizing cryptographic ratchet system, uh, is a, as I said, a similarly self-healing protocol. Uh, it was originally designed by Moxie Marlinspike of what was then named Whisper Systems. And then wisely renamed from axolotl to signal we and have a lot of people in our live discord giving us gifts of axolotls apparently and i will say i still stand by my branding statement folks. <laughs> yes <laughs> so of course it hit the big time when this protocol was adopted by meta to be the secure messaging protocol for their whatsapp messenger and if the phrase resynchronizing cryptographic ratchet system doesn't ring any bells, if you're a listener who joined us after April 12th of 2016, or you're a longtime listener who would be interested in a refresher, I did one of our famous deep dives into this truly lovely messaging protocol, which thanks to Meta's adoption, is now in use by more than a billion people worldwide. Anyway, look for Security Now episode 555, which we titled WhatsApp. And that's where I do a deep dive into Axolotl, which, you know, is now fortunately <laughs> rebranded as Signal. Okay, the reason we're talking about Signal today is that Signal, the company, made headlines last week in the tech community with their announcement that their already extremely clever and well-designed, very secure signal protocol was being upgraded with something they called PQXDH, quantum resistant encryption. And if I didn't already have a topic for today's podcast, this would have been it. <laughs> um, but we have room for both. Okay, signals move might at first appear premature since the threat posed by quantum computers to public key crypto, which we rely on today, remains purely theoretical 
and may well remain so for the for the foreseeable future. Um, we've had some fun in the past at quantum computing's expense, noting that breaking RSA-style crypto, which would require determining the prime number factors of a massive number represented by more than 4,000 binary bits, appears to be safe for now since it was considered to be a breakthrough and a huge accomplishment when today's most advanced quantum computer successfully factored the number 35. So that's the best we've been able to do so far. Mm. Uh, we need to factor a 4,000-bit number in order to break RSA-style crypto. So it seems to be, the point is, very safe for the time being. Now, given that, it might appear that signals move to an overtly quantum-resistant protocol is premature. But if nothing else... It's brilliant marketing. Okay, but there's more to it than that. The security world has coined another abbreviation, which is pronounced HANDL, because the abbreviation is H-N-D-L. H-N-D-L stands for Harvest Now, Decrypt Later. And we know that our dearly beloved NSA has built a truly massive one somewhere between one and one and a half million square foot data center of some sort out in the boonies of Utah. So there's more than a passing chance that the harvesting now first half of harvest now decrypt later strategy is already well underway. They're sucking in all the messaging that's going on. They can't decrypt it today, but they assume they're going to be able to decrypt it Someday. So grab it now, harvest it now, decrypt it later. In other words, you know, for what the lesson is then for us now is if you want your secrets today to remain secret past the foreseeable future, it's never too soon to begin encrypting under post quantum crypto technology. And that's what makes Signal's announcement last week significant. Okay, so what exactly is Signal done? Signal's current shared secret key agreement protocol is known as X3DH. The DH is short for Diffie-Hellman, which is a well-established key agreement system. We've discussed key agreement protocols in general, and Diffie-Hellman in particular, many times in the past on the podcast. And I know it pretty well, since it plays a large part in Squirrel's more tricky security features, with you know, the, the features that I designed in my, into my own uh, Squirrel technology. Okay, briefly, a key agreement protocol allows two ends of an insecure and public connection to exchange some information in plain sight while each of them obtain a shared secret, which no one else is able to get. I know you're scratching your head and and I know it's really very cool technology. It seems counterintuitive that their conversation could be completely known while they each arrive at the same secret that only they know, but it works. Wow. The X3 the X3 in the X3DH refers to the X25519 elliptic curve, 
which is the flavor that signals Diffie-Hellman key agreement, and actually mine, I chose the same one, has traditionally used. Okay, and what's really cool is that they're still going to use this in the future. What they decided to do was to add another key agreement protocol. This one believed to be quantum safe to their existing system in such a way that both of the protocols, the old and reliable elliptic curve Diffie-Hellman and the believed to be safe today and tomorrow newfangled quantum safe system, both would need to be simultaneously broken and cracked in order for an attacker to obtain the shared secret that's used to decrypt signals communications. Signal selected one of the NIST contest finalists that's believed to be the best, the one known as Crystal's Kyber, K-Y-B-E-R, and we've talked about it previously. They chose it because it's built upon a solid foundation, but they also wisely decided that since it's new and unproven, and actually one of the other contest finalists turned out to be broken by breakable by conventional computers. So, whoops, it's a good thing they didn't use that one. You know, mm-hmm. again, not yet proven. That's why they're keeping the Diffie-Hellman around, just to have a belt and suspenders approach. Um, anyway, so because it's new and unproven, they decided not to depend upon it solely. So Signal's original X3DH has been renamed PQXDH for post-quantum. You know, the PQ is for post-quantum and the Mm -hmm. XDH for the existing elliptic curve Diffie-Hellman, which survives in the new combined protocol. And here's the coolest part. This new PQXDH is already present and supported in the latest versions of Signal's client applications, and it's already in use, protecting any conversations initiated after both sides of the chat are using the latest Signal software, which supports both the original and the updated PQXDH protocol. Then over time in the future, after sufficient time has passed for everyone to be using the new Signal, Uh, and to have updated, they plan to disable all use of the old non-quantum enhanced X3DH only protocol in favor of all new conversations, which would then be requiring PQXDH for all new chats. So, you know, this is great. You know, it's clear that we are moving into a post-quantum world, even though you know, it seems like we're still a long way away from from quantum computers being a threat to our existing crypto. You know, this whole concept of a harvest now, decrypt later, there's a lot of that makes a lot of sense. Now that Signal has led the pack of, of messaging apps by introducing quantum safe messaging, the rest of the pack who may have been caught by surprise you know, caught off guard, they'll have no choice but to figure out how to do the same, you know, because they don't want to get left behind. So uh, it's great. Essentially, this means that we will be, you know, moving to the next generation of crypto 
uh, in advance of its clear need. And that makes sense, too, because at some point we would we will be surprised when a quantum computer is created, which is able to do this. We might as well be ready for it. Yeah. Now, did you all speak last week about what was going on with with Signal and the EU and the EU's new plan to pass a bill, basically giving them a backdoor to everything? Uh so we've talked a lot about the privacy issues. Uh, w- what happened in the UK was they amended U- the legislation. UK, right. Th- they amended the legislation to to basically give the messaging apps an out. They said you you must, must, must scan where technically feasible. <laughs> and that where technically feasible clause says, oh, OK, fine. It's not technically mm-hmm. feasible. So, okay. you know, so, so the politicians get to say we did, you know, we implemented strong new legislation, whereas none of the messaging apps are worried about it anymore. Oh, so, okay. So what will be interesting is to see what the EU does. Will they also back down? Because mm-hmm. it really looks like any government that says we must have you scanning all content, they're simply going to lose all cryptographic services in their country and yeah. they can't afford to do that. Right. Yeah. I believe I saw um, signals leadership saying, yeah, we'll, we'll just step out of here. Oh, See yeah. you later. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah, comes yeah. down to it. Yep. And I totally yep. get that folks. This is security. Now episode 941 with Mr. Steve Gibson dropping some great knowledge and information on us in the world of cybersecurity and information security. I am Matt Pruitt, but next We're going to hop on into a quick break here to thank another fine sponsor of the show. And that is the folks at ACI Learning. Yes, 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 yes. ACI Learning. So this episode of Security Now is brought to you by IT, our friends at IT Pro TV. But now they're called ACI Learning. Uh, In today's IT talent shortage, whether you operate as your own department or you're part of a larger team, Your skills, they have to be up to date. Get this, 94% of CIOs and CISOs agree that attracting and retaining talent is pretty daggum critical uh, to their roles. So with ACI Learning, you get access to over 7,200 hours of content. And ACI Learning is consistently adding new content to keep you at the top of your game. Your team will thank you for for entertaining training that ACI Learning has put together. And what's crazy is just such a cool stat. ACI Learning's completion rate is at 50% higher than their competitors. And that's because it's just, it's entertaining. If you're going to do a training session, at least make it enjoyable for your team to do those sessions. Because if it's enjoyable, more than likely they're going to finish it up. ACI Learning is excited to introduce cyber skills. This is a solution to future-proof your entire organization, not just the IT department. This is new cybersecurity training tools for all of the members in your organization. It's cybersecurity awareness training for non-IT professionals. You know, we spoke briefly here earlier in the show about, you know, picking up USB drives off the ground and stuff like that. That's got nothing to do with being in IT, but it is definitely an IT security risk with cyber skills get flexible on-demand training covering everything from password security phishing scams and malware prevention and network safety 
your employees will stay motivated and engaged throughout their learning process with easy to follow material. With a simple one hour course overview, your employees will gain attack specific training and knowledge check assessments based on common cyber threats that they'll encounter pretty much every day because it's just that easy for these cyber criminals out there. They'll also gain access to, uh, to bonus courses and documentary style episodes. So your employees can learn about cyber attacks and breaches in their own style, not just someone sitting there lecturing them. You know what I mean? ACI learning helps you invest in your team and entrust them to thrive while increasing the entire security of your business. Boost your enterprise cybersecurity confidence today with our friends at ACI Learning. Be bold, train smart. Now, visit go.acilearning.com slash twit. Now, twit listeners can receive up to 65% off an IT Pro Enterprise Solution Plan after completing their form. Based on your team's size, of course, you'll receive a proper quoted discount tailored specifically to your needs. That's go.acilearning.com slash twit. And we thank him for supporting the show. All right. So, Mr. Steve, it's time for us to close up the loop. What you got for <laughs> us? Yep, we got some really interesting listener feedback that uh, drives some, uh, I think, in- interesting observations. Uh, our listener, Dustin Smith, put me on to a blog posting, which was re- originally written three and a half years ago on March 18th of 2020. Yet, if nothing, it's more relevant today than it was then. This blog posting was written by a guy na- named Drew DeVault. It's an on-point rant about what modern web browsers have become. And I think everyone here will find it interesting. Here's what he wrote. Mm -hmm. He said, since the first browser war between Netscape and Internet Explorer, web browsers have been using features features as their primary means of competing with each other. This strategy of unlimited scope and perpetual feature creep is reckless and has been allowed to go on for far too long. He said, I used, he says, I used WGET to download all 1,217 of the W3C specifications. That's, you know, the World Wide Web Consortium, the Mm -hmm. W3C. So all 1,217 of the World Wide Web Consortium specifications, which have been published at the time of writing. And he said, not counting WebGL, which is maintained by Kronos. He said, web browsers need to implement a substantial subset of this specification in in order to provide a modern web experience. He said, I ran a word count on all of these specifications. How complex would you guess the web is? (laughs) Okay. He said, the total word count of the W3C specification catalog is 114 million words at the time of writing. Wow. If you added the combined word counts of the of of the C11, which is you know C language 11, C++ 17, UEFI, USB 3.2 and POSIX specifications, all 8754 
published RFCs and the combined word counts of everything on Wikipedia's list of longest novels, you would still be 12 million words short of the (laughs) W3C specifications. Now, I mean, okay, so there is, it is that complex. Wow. So he said, I conclude that it is impossible to build a new web browser. The complexity of the web is obscene. The creation of a new web browser would be comparable in effort to the Apollo program or the Manhattan Project. He said it is impossible to, (laughs) first, implement the web correctly. Impossible. Second, implement the web securely. And third, implement the web at all. (laughs) He said, starting work on a bespoke browser engine with the intention of competing with Google or Mozilla is a fool's errand. The last serious attempt to make a new browser, which was known as Servo, has become one part incubator for Firefox refactoring, one part playground for bored Mozilla engineers to mess with technology no one wants, and zero parts viable modern browser. But, he said, web VR is cool, right? Right? The consequences of this are obvious. He says, browsers are the most expensive piece of software a typical consumer computer runs. They're infamous for using all of your RAM, pinning CPU and I.O., draining your battery, etc. Combined, web browsers are responsible for more than 8,000 CVEs, you know, exploits, flaws, bugs alone. And then Drew switches from establishing some facts to making a very interesting observation. He writes, because of the monopoly created by the insurmountable task of building a competitive alternative, browsers have also been free to stop being the user agent and start being the agent's of their creators instead. Mm. Firefox is filling up with ads, tracking, and mandatory plugins. Chrome is used as a means for Google to effectively track your eyeballs and muscle their anti-technologies like DRM and AMP into the ecosystem. The browser duopoly is only growing stronger, too as Microsoft drops Edge and WebKit falls well behind its competition. Now, remember, this is three and a half years ago. So, of course, this is that part is pretty much history. He said the major projects are open source. And usually when an open source project misbehaves, we're able to fork it to offer an alternative. But even this is an impossible task where web browsers are concerned. The number of W3C specifications grows at an average rate of 200 new subspecs per year, or about 4 million new words of specification, or about one POSIX every four to six months. How can a new team of any forked browser project possibly keep up 
with this on top of implementing and maintaining the outrageous scope web browsers already have now. He finishes, the browser wars have been allowed to continue for far too long. They should have long ago focused on com competing in terms of performance and stability, not in adding new web features, he has in air quotes. This is absolutely ridiculous and has to stop. Okay, so I, I need to interject here because I, I get where Mr. Drew is coming from with his you know, stop adding features and whatnot, but let's think about this. Let's just think about vehicles, okay? We can have the Honda Civic, you know, simple four-cylinder car, uh, but then we have the Honda Accord with a slightly larger engine, and then we have this, I don't know, like a Ford Mustang with an even bigger engine. So we have these fast cars and everybody's like, eh, I don't need that fast car. But then you throw in Bluetooth features. Oh, I want that. And and that's what's happening here. People are sold on features and are these large companies, Google and, and Firefox, they get that. Uh, if they want to stay in business, they're going to continue to add features. That's the nature of, of consumerism, right? Okay, maybe the right analogy, or trying to find a, a, a good comparison, um, not everybody can launch stuff into space, into no. orbit. You know, it requires so much infrastructure, so much technology, so much other stuff that mm -hmm. there are only a few ways of getting something launched into yeah. orbit. Mm -hmm. So, so, So similarly, his point is, there's just no way to create a third browser. So there, there is a duopoly. There, there is like there is a lock-in at this point. Mm -hmm. you, there's no way to for there to be competition. And what we see in a, when there's a lack of competition is then then the rules change so that the the browser creators no longer have to create the best product anymore. Okay. And and so so that's the point he's making. And with so, all of these specifications from the W3C. Um, do you think it's a, it's a bad idea considering we know about all of the uh, security issues behind the browser? Uh, it, it, it's, I don't I think it's a good idea. From no, <laughs> it, 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 the, the, in fact, it, it is the implementation of all these new things, which is where new problems get created. Yeah. You know, I'm often say, I'm always saying if we would just leave this stuff alone, we'd be able to fix the problems and then we'd have some security. But, there are incentives for not leaving it alone. You know, everybody uh, wants to, up, you know, is. force you to upgrade to the newest operating system, the, the the newest browser. Everybody wants the newest features. You know, arguably, it's cool that you're now able to do web conferencing with just your browser. It used to be that you had to have yeah, some, some extra yeah. software in order right. to do it. Now, right. you know, you don't need that. So I guess the only thing that I would change about what Drew wrote in his last line uh, you know, he, he, he said um, uh, they should have long ago focused on competing in terms of performance and stability, not in adding new web features. This is absolutely ridiculous and it has to stop. OK, I would say I would change it to this is unfortunate in the extreme, but there doesn't appear to be any way for the industry to change that course. And I think that I mean, you know, he says it has to stop. I would argue how is it ever going to? Why would it? Um, and I would further add that to their credit, 
Microsoft perceived very early on just how important the web browser would be to the future. You remember, they attempted to build it into Windows, and they called it Internet Explorer. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they got taken to court and, 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 and sued over antitrust issues because, right. you know, they built this, this browser into their operating system because, again, to their credit, they knew this was the future. Yep. Um, and as we know, what the web has become even outgrew their, Microsoft's, their ability to browse it. Once upon a time, IE was the most widely used browser. It attained a peak of 95% market share about 20 years ago in 2003. It was still horrible. (laughs) Yes. This this podcast began two years later, and we all witnessed IE's decline over this period of time, leading to its inevitable death. After making a massive investment in a brand near in a, in a brand new post IE engine, Microsoft, again to their credit, recognized that a modern web browser was too big for even them, and that they'd better they'd be better off just hanging bells and whistles off a browser, you know, Chromium, which they got from 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 the from the Chrome project that someone else was maintaining and evolving. So, are there any takeaways for us here? No. <laughs> None that I can think of. Drew's observations, which I think are valuable, pair beautifully with what I've noted to be true of operating systems. Just as no one can create a truly competitive and useful, truly new operating system from scratch any longer because they're just there's just too much there, You know, any operating system that a user is going to sit in front of will need to host a web browser that is all by itself also too massive and complex to create today from scratch. So I also think all of this was absolutely inevitable. And that further suggests that it wasn't a mistake. It's not a consequence of inertia, which we often observe elsewhere. And Mm. we're almost certainly going to continue moving down this path from here on you know this is you know this is where we're headed so um another piece of feedback from uh an anonymous person who actually called himself anonymous he said hello mr gibson i hope it sounds like ant hello mr gibson i hope i can ask you a question over the last podcast from security now around 30 minutes in you say that you encrypt with the private key and decrypt with the public key. Is this right? I think it's reverse. What I learned is that you encrypt with the public key and decrypt with the private key. Is this right? Or do I have wrong information? Thanks for your response. Okay. So one of the powerful beauties of public key cipher technology is that the process does work in either direction. It's obviously very useful to encrypt something using someone's public key that you know only they will be able to decrypt with their secret private key. PGP is a perfect example of this. And 
digital signatures of all kinds is the best example of do of this being done in reverse. In fact, PGP does this too. To provide authentication of the sender of a message, the sender uses their private key to sign the file, which the recipient is able to verify using the sender's public key. So when the recipient is verifying the signature, they're decrypting a hash of the document that the sender encrypted with their private key. So the last time we talked about public key technology, I was I was really pleased with the way th- th- that I, I conceptualized the public and private key distinction used by non-elliptic curve RSA-style crypto. Okay, so you, you start by obtaining a private key, which is really just a large prime number. So you just get a big prime number. And remember mm-hmm. that counterintuitive though it is, prime numbers do not become more scarce as we go farther and farther out, like farther and farther you know, down the numbers. You sort of think they would, right? Because a prime, the definition of a prime number is that it's, it's only divisible by one and itself. You know, like no even numbers are prime. Mm-hmm. But but then no every third number is prime because it could be di- uh, divided by three, and no even number is prime because it could be divided by two. Two, yeah. And then and then every fifth number is not prime because it can be divided by five, and so on. So since you know because of that, you'd think that would all kind of pile up, and so like it'd be hard to find big numbers way out there that that aren't divisible by something that's come before. But it turns out. That's not the way it works. There's always plenty of them. Okay, so you take a really big prime number, and that's our private key. Okay, now we want to arrange to hide that private key inside the public key. We do this by taking another very large prime number and multiplying that new prime number with the original private key, which was also a prime number. And though I've simplified things, it's that multiplied key is the public key. The public key contains the private key. But there's no way to know what it is after they've been multiplied together because to this day, despite all the best brains in math, and I mean this has received a lot of attention through the years, no one has ever come up with a practical way to unmultiply those two primes through the process of prime factorization. And by the way, that is the danger posed by quantum computing. There are reasons to believe that some future quantum computer might be able to finally factor a very large public key, which contains those two primes, one of which is the private key, if you could factor that back into its original two prime numbers, then you'd have the private key, which could then be used to de- decrypt things where you were assuming that was not possible. So the true magic of public key crypto is that that private key, which has been hidden inside the public key by multiplying it with another prime, 
that it is still able to perform encryption and decryption operations despite being completely hidden by its multiplication by another large prime number. Anyway, it is just so cool. So so first off, um, excuse me while I let all of the steam come out of my ears because <laughs> I'm like, wow, what in the heck? And so. secondly, it, with quantum computing, it, do you feel like this is still something in the near future to be able to, to, to get no. this? I, I, no. I, 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 I wasn't going to sit here and say I was concerned, but I wanted to ask you first, though. Yeah, that that uh, as I mentioned before, um, the best we've seen a quantum computer do is factor the number thirty-five, right? Okay, into yeah. five and seven. That's yeah. so like that's like whoa, it worked. Yeah. But I yeah. mean, so uh, no, we're, we're we're not in. I mean, now okay, there could be a breakthrough. Right. There could be some fundamental, you know, crazy ass like no one expects it comes out of right field breakthrough mm-hmm. could happen. Um, and, and so that's why we already have we're already beginning to standardize on next generation quantum safe crypto so that we will be using that if such a breakthrough happened, because if it happened today, uh, you know, I often use the phrase. It's the end of the world as we know it. Uh, that probably really would be. Yeah. It, it would. It would be. You know, if you were to use really, really bad and and like the amount of badness is how many reallys you put in front. You could be saying really, 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 <laughs> all day long. That would it would be really bad. So, yeah. But for now, it looks like we're safe. Yeah. Okay. Good. Now. Here's a particularly interesting piece of feedback. Um, a listener who whose name I will just say is Jerry, and I'll explain why I anonymized him in a minute, because initially it wasn't. He wrote to me. He said, your assertion that, quote, no deterministic mathematical algorithm can generate a random result, unquote, is incorrect. He said, non-deterministic mathematical algorithms, processes, can generate true random results, not pseudo-random numbers. And he finished, I developed such an algorithm. Okay. Okay. So, first of all, I said, no deterministic mathematical algorithm, not non-deterministic mathematical algorithm. Now, the problem is that the phrase non-deterministic mathematical algorithm is, as far as I know, an oxymoron. You know, one plus Mm -hmm. one equals two. And wait a minute, one plus one still equals two. And oh, one plus one, yes, it still equals two. All mathematical algorithms are inherently deterministic. Now, if I made a mistake on my math homework in elementary school, explaining to my teacher that this was my implementation of a non-deterministic mathematical algorithm, I'm pretty certain that would not have gone over very well, nor would it have changed my grade. So, <laughs> I can see the little Steve Gibson right now at the uh, front of the class, like the chalkboard. This, um, is, a, this is a non-deterministic <laughs> mathematical algorithm. That's why I didn't multiply these two six-digit numbers correctly. Okay, so Jerry... If you indeed 
have developed a non-deterministic mathematical algorithm which is capable of generating true random results, there's probably a Nobel Prize waiting for you (laughs) in Stockholm. And more importantly, what you may have actually done is uncovered a provable flaw in the simulation we're all living within. (laughs) Okay, but seriously, you have my attention. You have access to an audience. uh, Are you just going to leave us all hanging like that? Because that's all he said. Okay, now, in a bizarre coincidence, just as I was getting ready to hit, to save as PDF, to cast these show notes from Google Docs, where I write them every week into their PDF form, I happened to glance down at my phone and saw a reply tweet from this person. Yesterday, when I encountered his assertion, not knowing how to respond to something which clearly seemed impossible, I simply simply replied, I hope you've submitted this for a Nobel Prize. Now, it turns out he didn't take that very well. I wonder why. <laughs> now, you know, certainly not in the somewhat carefree spirit, you know, it was meant. So, okay, the first thing I did was to anonymize his identity in the show notes, since mm-hmm. I certainly don't want to embarrass him from this dialogue. Yeah. What he tweeted in reply to my short comment about the Nobel Prize And, you know, and actually I'm kind of serious about that because really, I mean, if he really did this, it would be worthy of a Nobel Prize. Anyway, this morning, as I was getting ready to finish the show notes, I I saw his tweet. He replied, "I'm I'm very surprised by your reply. I've been a customer and promoter of your products and services for 30 plus years. I have read numerous articles of yours. I never expected sarcasm from you. (laughs) He said, my bad. I developed these and similar algorithms more than 45 years ago. I have always expected others to develop like algorithms, but to date, this has not occurred. Okay, that was his tweet Mm -hmm. this morning. Now, again, I'm having a little bit of trouble taking this seriously, or at least as seriously as he is. You know, when he says, I've always expected others to develop like algorithms, but to date this has not occurred, I'll admit, my first impulse is to say, gee, I wonder why that is. Okay, instead, this is what I replied to him. I said, hi, Jerry. Okay, so I suppose my reply was somewhat sarcastic. And I certainly would love to be proven wrong in my assertion that, to quote you quoting me, no deterministic mathematical algorithm can generate a random result, unquote. The trouble is, I wrote, I still believe that to be true. (laughs) And not just a little bit true, but very true. (laughs) If you're a mathematician, then you understand that the way to proceed from here would be to offer up some proof of your assertion, which appears to defy the laws and (laughs) principles of mathematics and reality. I'd be more than happy to eat my sarcasm if you can demonstrate that I'm wrong 
exclamation point, smiley face. So <laughs> so tactful, sir. <laughs> that's I'm serious, really. I mean, this would be great. You know, I'll buy his plane ticket to Stockholm. Uh, for him, I've to never receive. heard a more polite smartassery from anyone, sir. You, <laughs> this was really well done. For what it's worth, if I do hear anything more from Jerry, I will let everyone know because that would be big. Now, right. it must be that we are that there's a there's a mis there's a confusion of definition when I'm saying no deterministic mathematical algorithm can generate a random result. And he's talking about a non, a non deterministic mathematical algorithm, which again, I think is an oxymoron. Okay. We're at cross purposes here, but anyway, it was an interesting (laughs) bit of feedback that uh, I had intended to share. And now I'm able to share a bit of dialogue. Um, Todd said, hey, Steve, I listened to episode 940 where you where you explain securely wiping drives by writing random bits to all sectors of spinning drives. Lately, I've been using Veracrypt to encrypt old drives before I get rid of them. He said, parens, using GRC's password page to generate a secure password. Is this a secure as your upcoming software that writes random noise. And that's I think question. that's that's very clever. Yeah. You know? Uh if and, and so if, if he were to do it twice under different keys, then it would be the equivalent of writing random noise just as GRC's solution will be. And I would not argue that the second pass is absolutely necessary. You know, I might offer a single pass option for those in a hurry with my own product. Uh, uh, product. Veracrypt, like its ancestor, TrueCrypt, uses XTS cipher mode encryption, which is the industry standard and NIST approved way of encrypting block addressed mass storage using what's known as a tweakable block cipher. And we also know that any good modern cipher, like AES, generates pseudo-random noise that's indistinguishable from true random noise. It'll be slower than GRC's product since it's reading and writing in order to encrypt what was already there. And I don't know how large the blocks are that it's using. If they were really small, that would slow it down. Presumably, it knows how to do that quickly. Um, It won't be able to access and wipe the latent data that might exist in grown defect spared out sectors. But it is truly a nifty solution until GRC's product is ready. The Veracrypt encrypt and then discard the key solution is here today and it's free. So anyway, uh, uh, Todd, thanks for sharing the idea. I think it's pretty clever and it's a great application. And I cannot think of any downside to it. Um, Bill Melvin said, hey, hi, Steve. I have a thought regarding the discussion on wiping hard drives on show 940. I assume TrueCrypt and Veracrypt hidden volumes look like random noise. It seems to me that doing an extra pass of writing zeros to a drive takes you from plausible deniability to absolute impossibility. In an abundance of paranoia, why take the risk of being badgered over something that's not there? 
Thank you for Security Now, which I've enjoyed for years. I have my Spinrite license, and I'm looking forward to the new version. Okay, so when I talked about um, my when I talked about the my idea, my concept for the best secure wipe is to is to wipe with random noise. The point he's making is that random noise looks like something, even if it's not. So if a drive was filled with random noise, it might induce someone to, you know, in the extreme, you know, put you under some coercion, asking you for what the key was to decrypt the drive when it was actually just random noise. So he says, do another wipe to zeros so that nobody will think there's anything there, then they won't come asking for the key. And I I think he makes a good point. Mark Causal says, I found your description of SSD wear leveling fascinating. It is amazing what engineers have come up with to handle issues like this. And it got me wondering. I have a portable SSD with a single multi-gigabyte VeraCrypt blob on it. I open the blob a few times a week and make changes to files inside. After closing the blob, everything appears to be unaltered as far as Windows knows. So I set VeraCrypt to change the file modification date on the blob when I realized SyncThing needed that to detect a change and sync the blob to my NAS. Does the wear leveling capability work on the blob? Is it active inside the blob when I have it open in VeraCrypt? Love the show and continuing education credits I get towards my Security Plus certification by listening. Okay, so Mark, the answer is yes. The wear leveling is occurring at the lowest possible level in the chain of data flow just before the data is written to the drive. It is not visible to anyone reading or writing to and from the drive. So it functions whether the data being read or written is encrypted or not. And one slick benefit of using VeraCrypt to encrypt the blob on the SSD is that since VeraCrypt always leaves the data on the SSD encrypted, only decrypting it on the fly as necessary when it's read into the computer, as wear leveling causes blob updates to be written to dispersed regions of the drive, thus leaving obsoleted bits of the blob behind, those obsoleted and isolated blob bits are also encrypted. So that drive will never need to be wiped, at least not to protect anything that was ever stored in the blob. Once VeraCrypt's volume header has been overwritten multiple times, there's no way to ever recover any of that blob's data, period. Meaning that the wear leveling, which you may not have access to, is not a concern as it would be if you stored unencrypted data on the drive, which you then wanted to secure, because all of that wear leveled data would have been previously encrypted bits in the blob. So, a very nice application. Um, Wayne Patton asked, how difficult would it be to change the signed integer 
to an unsigned something else and recompile and fix Unix time. So he's, of course, talking about the fact that we were recently talking about how Unix time, the signed integer, which is technically it's 32 bits, but because it's signed, we only get 31 bits worth of of range. Uh, how, because it's signed, Unix time will be, ra- the original 32-bit Unix time will be wrapping around uh, uh, in 2038. I should have then, but I failed to mention that this Unix time problem was fixed in the Unix kernel back in June of 2018 after two and a half years of research into the right way to do it without breaking other things in Linux. Uh, in the process, more than 80, 80 source files had to be changed. So this why 2038 problem is no longer any concern for Linux kernels ever since. The worry is that before this time, all embedded, for example, Linux kernels of the sort used for industrial automation, satellites, elevators, and who knows what else, will have this trouble. And in those markets, there's much more of a, if it's not broken, don't fix it mentality. So the concern is not that mainstream Linux or any of the various major Unixes will break. They've all been fixed. It's that some satellite that's been in orbit since before this was fixed may become suddenly confused and do know who knows what it might do. So, you know, maybe a long forgotten pump on an oil rig will misbehave no we don't we don't know anyway it's going to be interesting to see whether it's another non-event like y2k turned out to be or whether something interesting might occur and you know stay tuned we'll be here in 2038 (laughs) oh y2k i got memories (laughs) of that fond memories of that (laughs) so um bowder He said, hello, Steve. Thank you for the many great episodes of Security Now. I've just listened to episode 939 and have a thought about what you said regarding the LastPass hack. You mentioned that hackers will go after those accounts where they suspect a big payout. I think you're right about that. But I also think we must not let our guard down. All accounts will eventually be decrypted and all accounts will be available for purchase on the dark web. This will be a problem for all those, including me, who use LastPass to store information like social security numbers and other personal IDs. I think it's important to take precautions while we still can. Kaiden regards Johannes. Okay, and in case you're not aware, Ant, um, we, we talked about this last week. There's very good evidence leading us to believe that selective decryption of specific high-value LastPass vaults, which were stolen in that LastPass breach, mm-hmm. are being, that is to say, have been decrypted. And and the cryptocurrency wallets of people who stored their master crypto keys in their LastPass vaults have been emptied. And about $35 million or so of, mm-hmm. of cryptocurrency has been transferred. Okay, yeah, I so, saw reports on that. It's yeah. pretty scary. So I wanted to share Johannes's note because I understand his concern, and I imagine it is shared. 
But I also doubt that the vast majority of the more than 25 million users whose encrypted data was stolen are actually ever in any real danger. Even the advent of quantum computing won't make any difference here Mm. since we're talking about brute forcing symmetric crypto, which quantum computing does not threaten. The cost of performing 100,000 and 100 rounds, which is the the level we were at when the when the breach occurred, where most people probably had their iteration count set, mm-hmm. argue, and we know some were a lot lo- lower than that, and that's a concern. Mm-hmm. But the cost of performing 100,000 and 100 rounds against a brute force against a hopefully high entropy password is truly prohibitive. These crooks appear to be spending significant money on cracking gear or cloud compute cycles. And they appear to be cracking only a couple of vaults per week. That's the rate at which this cracking is occurring because it is really expensive to do this. That's perhaps a hundred or so per year against a population of more than 25 million vaults. It's true that someday they might eventually get around to opportunistic attacks against non-high-profile targets whose iteration counts are low. But even then, if the passphrase is good, there's no reason, there's no clear reason to believe that any actual cat, that, that there's no clear reason to believe that that any actual cash lies on the other end of the crack. That is, Mm -hmm. they wouldn't know until they performed the crack. And Mm -hmm. it still takes a significant investment of time and money to turn someone's vault back into plain text. It really is not ever going to be easy. So, you know, the original design of LastPass, which is what caused me to endorse it, was strong. And as long as the iteration count is high, it's always going to be expensive to to crack the vaults. So, you know, I cannot tell anyone that there's absolutely nothing to worry about. So my intention is only to to present some, I think, probably probably accurate perspective. Cracking these vaults will never be free, and these people are probably not ones to throw away good money. It will cost money. And I think that the attacks will continue to be targeted and that they will probably peter out over time and Mm -hmm. that it's not the case that they will all be cracked. There's just no reason to. It's just it is too expensive. Um, Kevin Van Heron, he said, listening to the last mess episode, which is what I called that podcast, he said, (laughs) I realized I had some info in my last pass vault in addition to passwords things like ssh private keys recovery keys for all apple devices and various cloud services i didn't even think of rotating all those when i moved off LastPass. i'm also thinking that some of that should not be in my last pass replacement ssh keys i'll probably keep on an encrypted disk image on my computer instead 
Not sure on recovery keys. I may adopt your two-factor authentication authenticator app and just print out recovery keys and keep them someplace safe. So I wanted to share this because I think Kevin's observation that just because today's password managers offer us synchronized encrypted vaults, which are capable of holding all kinds of other stuff, Mm -hmm. does not mean that they are the best place to store unrelated non-web secrets. Password managers, they need our usernames and our passwords and, you know, credit cards, you know, and perhaps some additional automatic form-filled information for convenience. But things like SSH keys, server certificates, and other unrelated non-web passwords don't all need to be stored there in a single place. Yes, it's convenient. And that convenience can be seductive. Mm -hmm. But when you combine the wisdom of not keeping all of our eggs in one basket and the old fool me once saying with LastPass being that once, and when we consider that today's computing environment does not have any more dangerously exposed and complex software, as we saw above, than our web browsers, it would be difficult to make a case for storing more in our browsers than is needed for web-facing activity. I think a good cross-platform encrypted archiving program is probably a good solution. It can contain Mm. all kinds of stuff. It squeezes it down. And then any file synchronization tool, you know, any of the cloud drives or third-party sync systems like SyncThing or Sync.com can keep the copies synchronized. I'll be interested to hear if any of our listeners have a better idea. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about LastPass because I, I know where you stand on it. And I've been a LastPass user since before coming to Twit because, you know, I heard about them on Twit and your recommendation and so forth. Yeah. And when all of that went down with them, I did consider moving over to our sponsor, uh, Bitward. Bitward. I did consider that and opened the account and started a transition. And then I just found, you know what? I'm just going to change all of my passwords, period. And I spent a weekend, a, a legit weekend, sitting at a laptop, going through everything and changing all of those passwords. And then I said, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and just keep LastPass. And it, it's and I feel fine with that. I updated those iterations and so forth. So my thought is, if someone has my vault, um, I don't think they have my current password. Not to mention, there's still also the aspect of multi-factor authentication that I have on everything. Yep. Um, so I think I'm fine. And I like to assume that just because LastPass got themselves in this mess, they probably learned from it and took a lot of losses on that. And it's probably going to make them better with their product going forward. I, I really can't find any fault in that thinking. We know how this happened now. We know that a developer who was working at home had failed to keep his Plex server. Plex server, right? Yeah. Up to date. <laughs> And they got in through the through the through a known um, a known vulnerability in the Plex server onto his network onto his home network. Then they jumped from there, 
using his laptop connection through the VPN into the developer side of LastPass, and then that's how they set up shop. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm more comfortable knowing how this happened than if it was just a big mystery and they never found out because, you know, we understand the path and we now know there's no question that they Mm -hmm. have arranged not to allow anything like that to happen again. So, you know, I am, I am of the opinion, you know, it's why I didn't jump ship after when they first had, you know, the, 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 the the first announcement of there being, you know, some sort of problem. Right. I think if you have a very high iteration count and I think they're now recommending 600,000 or, or, or more. Right. Um, for, for last pass, um, there's no reason to believe that their technology is fundamentally defective. I don't think it is. And there is reason to believe that they've made themselves more secure. Now, the only caveat I guess I would provide or suggest is that they're owned by a, um, uh, I can't, I, I can't remember the name of it. It's a, it's a, you know, a, a monetary fund, and, oh, like and, 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 an equity, a, a, a private equity fund. That's, okay. that's, that's, that's the word I was trying to remember, a private equity fund. And private equity funds or, or firms, they're not really interested in the technology. True. They're interested in profit. True. You know, they want to turn this thing into money. So one of the ways you do that is you squeeze it. You uh, reduce your staff. You yep. reduce your, you Cut know, all that overhead. They, as much the as you backup, can. The, you know, the off-premises backups, and you reduce this and you reduce that. So, I guess I would suggest that that's a that that's a warning sign mm-hmm. that you know that with like the original founder of LastPass, he's gone. He's mm-hmm. no longer you know making sure that things continue to be done right. So. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that LastPass is owned by private equity, eh, that spooks me a little bit. Yeah, that's fair. That's they, fair. They, they could be cutting corners, and we wouldn't know it until a problem happened. Okay, so Don K said, thank you, Steve. You are the only reason I still use this Twitter or X account. So I can now look forward to deleting it as soon as your email solution arrives. And Mark Newton said... I'm one of the few people who may hold out a little while and hope Elon turns this thing around. The boy does have a track record of success. Dropping the name Twitter was almost as dumb as buying the thing. I'll give him another year. It will it will either be turning around or Twitter slash X will be a thing of the past. Now, Aunt, you weren't here, but last week I announced that, you know, I thought that Elon's statement the previous day monday a week ago that he was going to charge everybody it would no longer be free i thought that spelled the end of twitter so i explained that i would be putting together an email system in order to to in order to to, to send what i'm normally sending by 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 tweet and mm-hmm. to create a a spam free means for people to get back to me now invariably some people took exception to that. Yeah. And I heard from people who took exception to what they called my anti-Elon, anti-Twitter rant. Um, and I, as I just said, others confirmed what I suspected, which was that the only reason they still had Twitter was to easily receive my weekly Security Now tweets. Okay, so l- allow me to clarify all this just a bit. 
Mm-hmm. I'm ahead. currently paid up for a year since I cannot survive Twitter without TweetDeck. And I am fine with that. You didn't see me. No one saw me budge one inch when everything else that has happened so far mm-hmm. happened. I'm also in no big hurry to leave. My sole concern was that a switch to a 100% paid model, which Leo thinks may never happen, and I understand that too, Mm -hmm. would represent a profound change to Twitter. I don't know how big, but, I mean, big enough that Leo says, nah, that'll never happen. I mean, because it would be huge. I'm already paid up, as I said, so it makes no difference to me one way or the other. But if... There are people, and I have heard from many since, who are only on Twitter to obtain my weekly tweets. Then I disliked the idea of any of our listeners feeling that they needed to go paid just to continue to receive that Twitter feed from me. Yeah, I wanted just... those people to know that there would be an alternative means for obtaining that information. You know, GRC currently has no means at the moment for receiving any community, for reaching any community outside of Twitter. So, as I mentioned before, I had planned and do to remedy that once Spinrite is released. So, I'll have the ability to mail to lists, and it makes sense for me to have a list for Security Now listeners of this podcast. So, that's where I stand. Mm-hmm. Not anti Elon, not anti Twitter. Just saying, if he's gonna if he's gonna force people to pay, and our listeners are already only on in Twitter because they want to get my tweets, I will create a a, a different free channel that everyone will be able to use. I dig so, your stance. It, that's a choice that you you have every right to make. If he if he were to make the platform a dollar a month, you know, which is not a lot. You can decline to to use that service, and right, I, you know. I and too. again, I said as I said, I'm paid up for a year. I'll be happy to keep tweeting the weekly show note links, the picture of the week, and a brief synopsis of the show's topics. That seems fine, but it mm-hmm. no longer seemed right for Twitter to be the only way for our listeners, of which there are many, to receive that information. Indeed, indeed. Okay, two pieces of miscellany, uh, Conrad. Uh, Zydrone, uh, he, uh, he, he, well, okay, he tweeted about that hash check SHA-256 fork you mentioned in SN940 last week. He said, it's here since 2014. And there's a GitHub link in the show notes. He said, and then he also said another fork with additional Blake 3 algorithm and faster implementations of SHA-256, 512, and SHA-3 and another link. Okay, so um, so remember, I was talking about an, having an easy way in Windows to obtain a useful hash of any file that you right-click on. Um, I talked about hash check. Turns out, what I learned is that the, the fork that I was wishing someone had created was indeed created nine years ago. <laughs> and it's on it's on GitHub. Love it uh, when that happens. <laughs> yes. So uh, I, I made it. I created a GRC shortcut for it. It's not the shortcut of the week. It's it's 
The, the shortcut is hash check. So the URL is grc.sc, you know, for shortcut, grc.sc slash H-A-S-H-C-H-E-K, hash check. If you use that link, that'll bounce you over to the, uh, Git, the, the GitHub release downloads page, and you can grab it. It's digitally signed. I immediately installed it. It's great. It's got all the modern hashes that we want. It's exactly what I was asking for last week, and it's existed for quite some time. So thank you. I, a bunch of people uh, told me that there have been updates. So uh, I just quoted Conrad's. Um, thank you very much. Nice. And finally, last week's podcast was titled, When Hashes Collide. Um, and I, it's finally safe to say that it made one library information scientist very happy. Uh, the guy who inspired the podcast and that title, he wrote, Hi, Steve! Exclamation point. He said, I was absolutely floored while listening to the show on Friday morning to hear that my question was turned into a truly fascinating and very useful deep dive. Our patron population, that is of his library, is a bit larger than 5,000 individuals. It's actually closer to 400,000. He said, I did say a large public library system in Ohio, and Ohio is known to be the land of the libraries, at least in certain circles. But the topic you presented is still, of course, very much applicable. And then he said, the idea of deliberately using the birthday paradox and further obscuring personally identifiable information by manipulating the number of bytes produced by the cryptographic hash is an absolutely brilliant way to add a meaningful layer of protection to the pseudonymized data. Controlling the probability of collisions within the population of patrons is something I didn't even realize I was looking for to give a small degree of uncertainty to the pseudonyms. Once again, an absolutely fantastic explanation of such a complex topic. Bravo. Okay, well, it's a bit embarrassing to read that, but thank you, Ray. <laughs> what most pleases me is that Ray got it completely. It turned out to be exactly what he was looking for, and he's already turned the concept into working code. He calls it the stochastic pseudonymizer, and for anyone who's curious, I have a link to his GitHub project in the show notes. So, Ray, thank you for the closure uh, and for being the uh, the incentive and the inspiration for a little bit of deep dive nerdism, which we had fun <laughs> with last week. And and cool. After you tell us about our third and final sponsor. I'm going to explain to everyone why I titled today's podcast, We Told You So. And we'll know who told who what. <laughs> I am looking forward to that, sir. Yes, this is another fine week here on Security Now with Mr. Steve Gibson. And we're going to go ahead and take a quick break and thank this week's sponsor, uh, the fine folks at Melissa is bringing you this episode of Security Now. Uh, the contact data quality experts. Okay, so this is holiday season. So right now you need to let Melissa help your business meet 
online shopping expectations and increase ROI and reduce the waste and cost associated with the loss of undeliverable packages and mailers and improve your customers' overall satisfaction. The importance of early preparedness for retailers before the holiday season is indisputable. Here are some of Melissa's tips to help you get started because, you know, right now we're recording this at the end of September. You need to start getting ready for these holidays. And yes, I know some of you include Halloween as a holiday. Good grief. (laughs) First, start by cleaning out your contact data with Melissa's data cleansing solutions. All of your still outdated data gets replaced with verified accurate information, such as replacing old addresses for people who have moved on and got new addresses um, and adding new emails or, or updated their phone numbers. Customers always want a seamless experience with efficient delivery. So make sure your business is meeting those expectations. Uh, next day and, and second day delivery implementation is, is in high demand these days. Uh, Melissa ensures that addresses are verified and standardized at checkout with their autocomplete tool. Not only does having a verified address at checkout ensure the, the, the address is deliverable, but it also cuts down on keystrokes by up to 75%, making your customer's experience quicker and easier. It is so cool when you're online doing your shopping and doing the checkout, and you literally just type in the first couple of digits of your street address and maybe the first two letters of the street name, and it just autofills that. That is so cool, and, and, and it makes it accurate, you know, idiot-proof. I love that. Offering bundles and cross-selling to existing customers is more cost-efficient than finding new ones, okay? So the holiday season is the perfect time to do this, and since customers are most likely shopping for others, profiling your data can give you a better understanding of your customer base and best-selling products, which can help you create more effective marketing strategies matching and deduping your data will clean up will clean your database allowing you to see a complete 360 degree view of each customer this will also help you understand your customers allowing for more personalized marketing and a better customer experience since 1985 melissa has specialized in global intelligence solutions and contact data quality Melissa continually undergoes independent security audits and is SOC 2, HIPAA, and GDPR compliant. She's got to have all of that. Make sure your customer contact data is up to date. Get started today with 1,000 records clean for free at melissa.com slash twit. One more time, that's melissa.com slash twit. We thank you, Melissa, for supporting the show. Now, Mr. Gibson, so um, you told us so? <laughs> uh, not exactly. Okay. Last, last Thursday, Apple quickly patched three iOS vulnerabilities. Taken together, they created a zero-day chain that enabled a potent attack that the Citizen Lab in Canada and Google's tag team, you know, their threat analysis group, TAG team, had jointly reverse-engineered from the forensic evidence residue left behind by a successful targeted attack aimed at an Egyptian citizen who had made himself a political target by announcing his intention to run in a forthcoming election against Egypt's current head of government. 
I named this episode, We Told You So, in acknowledgement of our many listeners who took exception to my assertion that not all websites in the world needed to be HTTPS. What Citizen Lab and the tag team discovered was that it was when this political target was led to a plain HTTP, non-HTTPS website, that his network traffic was intercepted on the fly by a man-in-the-middle middle box. That device returned an HTTP 307 temporary redirect, which caused his iPhone to be redirected to a spoofed website where the malicious content could be injected into his phone via this chain of three carefully designed exploits. So, indeed, no argument. You told me so. (laughs) Let's take a closer look at some of the interesting details here. The target of the attack was Ahmed El-Tanwi, a former Egyptian member of parliament. Earlier this year in March, he announced his intention to run in the upcoming Egyptian presidential election, stating that he planned to offer a democratic alternative to the current president, who some feel is not very democratic. His follow, uh, um, following his announcement, he, his family members, and supporters have been subjected to harassment, including reports of arrests of 12 family members. Egypt's current president, um, Abdel uh, Fatah el-Sisi has been in power since 2014 when he led the military overthrow of President Mohamed Morsi. Sisi has been widely described as an autocrat. Human rights groups, Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch have documented widespread human rights abuses under el-Sisi's regime, including repression against civil society groups, activists and political opposition. So... Egypt's current president doesn't appear to be a nice guy who plays fair or would be in favor of free and fair elections. Mm. Ahmed became suspicious about the safety of his phone and reached out to Citizen Lab, who then performed a forensic analysis of his device. Their analysis revealed numerous attempts to target Ahmed with Cytrox's predator spyware. Citizen Lab has previously documented Cytrox predator infections targeting the devices of two other exiled Egyptians, an exiled politician and the host of a popular news program who chose to remain anonymous. Citizen Lab brought Google's tag team into the project to perform some of the heavy reverse engineering forensics which the tag team excels at. This allowed them to obtain the complete iOS exploit chain that had been targeted at Ahmed. They initiated a responsible disclosure process with Apple, which assigned three CVEs to vulnerabilities associated with the chain. There was CVE 2023-41991, which was a security breach. A malicious app may be able to bypass signature validation. Whoops. 992 in the kernel. A local attacker may be able to elevate their privileges and 993 in WebKit. Processing web content may lead to arbitrary code execution. And there again is a browser exploit. And we were just talking about the problem with browser security. The zero-day chain was hosted on sec-flare.com 
and the exploit also contacted verifyurl.me. After fingerprinting those two websites, they scanned the Internet and identified a large number of, I, of other IPs that matched those sites' fingerprints. In other words, there were other domains that were pointing to the same malware hosting sites, and they considered all of those IPs and the domain names returned in TLS certificates when they matched the fingerprints to be directly linked to Citrox's predator spyware. They also observed that some of the domains they'd identified had names suggestive of tailoring towards specific countries or regions, including the uh, Arabian Gulf, Southeast Asia, Angola, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Egypt, Greece, Indonesia, Kazakhstan, Madagascar, Mongolia, the UAE, and Sudan. So, wow. By examining the final stage of the iOS exploit chain, which was an iOS payload, they were able to attribute with very high confidence that this was indeed Cytrox's predator spyware, which they'd obtained another sample of back in 2021, two years ago. Those two binaries, the old one and this new one, shared a key similarity which could only be accounted for through a common heritage. Okay, so what about this on-the-fly interception? This month of September and last month in August, when the target, Ahmed, visited certain websites without HTTPS from his iPhone using his Vodafone Egypt mobile data connection, he was silently redirected to a website at the domain c.betly, B-E-T-L-Y dot M-E, via an on-the-fly network traffic injection. Hmm. And that domain was among those that matched Citizen Lab's fingerprint for Cytrox's predator spyware. The injection was triggered, triggered by a string match on the website specified in the HTTP host header, as well as the value of the user agent header. I'll note that while the target domain can also be seen at the start of a TLS handshake, thanks to SNI, server name indication, subsequent TLS encryption blinds anyone who's eavesdropping from seeing additional connection details, such as the user agent header, which they use in this case. But since HTTP leaves everything in the clear, the attackers were able to use these additional signals to reduce mistargeting since they would not want non-targeted web traffic to be redirected. So as I said before, when the injection attack is triggered, the intercepting middle box immediately returned a 307 temporary redirect to the user's iPhone. That would be invisible to the user and it also, the, the middle box, blocks the legitimate reply coming back from the server, which, you know, would have come back from the authentic server. The body of the page which was returned from the malicious redirected website included two iframes, one which they described as containing apparently benign bait content. It was a link to an APK file not containing any spyware, but the second one was an invisible iframe containing a predator infection link 
hosted on that sec.flare-flare.com site. Next, they wanted to understand exactly where in the network this, this injection was being made. So they performed a bunch of tricky IP packet logic to localize the malicious middle box. They needed to get far more sneaky than just using a trace route style TTL, you know, a time to live manipulation, because they discovered that another benign traffic management middle box was also in the path, and it was located close to Vodafone's subscribers. Um, the reason that was a problem is that all the pa- all the traffic that passed through it had its TTL reset, so it was un- it was not possible to from the i from the iPhone send packets in a trace route style with with differing TTLs, causing a premature expiration of the packet that would allow you to map out the the route. As soon as you hit that that close middle box, it reset the uh, all the TTLs. Nonetheless, they were able to eventually determine that the malicious middle box was on the interconnect between Telcom Egypt and Vodafone Egypt, which is exactly where you'd expect it to be if you wanted it to be able to reliably intercept and infect targeted smartphone users. They were also able to identify the specific hardware by probing it remotely and comparing its responses to other known appliances. It is a commercial, off-the-shelf device made by a company called Sandvine, who has offices in San Jose, California, Sweden, Ontario, Canada, and India. It's one of their packet logic devices. And if anyone's curious, it's sandvine.com slash products slash packet logic. I looked at the data sheet for this device. It boasts features like policy-based traffic management capabilities that include asymmetric traffic control, traffic shaping and filtering, traffic flow classification and prioritization, traffic monitoring, and packet rewrite. In other words, a full spyware capability. Also, they said content intelligence enables network operators, cloud providers, and high-speed enterprises to combine the policy management capabilities of packet logic with industry-leading URL content categorization functionality. HTTP header enrichment, leveraging packet logic, stateful awareness, and subscriber awareness. Anyway, you know, this is exact. It's a commercial box. You don't need to build your own. You can buy one of these things, stick it anywhere you want, and perform this kind of traffic interception using commercial off-the-site hardware. So this is just one skew or, or multiple skews. The website looks like it has multiple skews. Oh yeah, there. they've got uh, basically it's how much traffic, how how what volume of traffic do you want? And so they keep adding interface speed and more interfaces in okay. order to get beefier and beefier devices. Got it. But but they're all part of that same family. So place the device in the link between Vodafone Egypt and the rest of the internet when you want to be able to mess with smartphone users. Citizen Lab also noted that they're unable to conclude whether this device sits on the Telcom Egypt side or the Vodafone Egypt side of the link, but it really doesn't matter. 
They suspect it's within Vodafone Egypt's network because in order to be able to precisely target injections at a specific Vodafone subscriber, you'd require integration with Vodafone's subscriber database. So that also suggests an intimate relationship between Vodafone and this device. So that's also, you know, part of the package. And given that the intercept or the the injection is operating all inside Egypt, that this class of spyware is sold to government agencies and that Egypt is a known predator customer, Citizen Lab believes it is highly unlikely that this could have been occurring outside of the purview of Egyptian authorities. In other words, this was sanctioned. And as if all this wasn't enough, Ahmed additionally received three SMS messages as far back as September of 2021. So two whole years ago in September, as well as more recently in May and September of this year, all three posed as messages originating from WhatsApp. The fraudulent messages invited him to visit a link contained within the message to, quote, terminate, unquote, what the messages claimed was a new login to his WhatsApp account. So, right, it was it was meant to invoke an immediate reaction of, oh, crap, click the link, you know, because somebody else is logged in, you know, mm-hmm. illegitimate as uh, illegitimately. Interestingly, approximately two minutes and 30 seconds after Ahmed read the first September 15th, 2021 SMS message, the predator spyware was installed on his phone. The researchers suspect that he did click the messages link and that triggered the installation. Since the 2023 messages contain nearly identical bait content, they believe that those messages were also attempts to install the predator spyware on Ahmed's phone. And as if the point hasn't been driven home enough, Citizen Labs write up of their research concluded the following. They said, our research reveals the potential insecurities that run through the entire spectrum of the telecommunications ecosystem, including at the network layer, which can be exploited to inject malware on an unsuspecting user's device. Our Internet communications are routed through many networks and middle boxes, some of which can be misused for malicious purposes, particularly if network requests flowing through them are not protected with cryptography. Although great strides have been made in recent years to encrypt the web, users still occasionally visit websites without HTTPS, and a single non-HTTPS website visit can result in spyware infection. This report, just one, this report should serve, they said, (laughs) as a reminder of the importance of achieving a 100% rate of HTTPS adoption. So, yes, our listeners told me so. (laughs) And just for the record... I never suggested that exactly this was not possible. In fact, I outlined exactly this architecture for such attacks. But there's also no question that HTTPS would have robustly blocked this particular attack. The non 
SMS variant. Uh, oh, it would not have blocked the the SMS variant, which we saw did actually affect infect him two years ago. But certainly the HTTP attack, which relied upon on-the-fly traffic interception, would have been blocked. Okay, now, unfortunately, the only way to really prevent such attacks would be to remove HTTP support from the Internet. Mm. And that still seems extreme. Right. The, uh, the other, the, I mean, it would break all non-HTTPS sites. You simply couldn't get there. The other countermeasure would be to display very scary warning messages from the browser before it takes you to a link you clicked on. But as we know, users typically just push past anything that gets in their way. Exactly. So, so that would be ineffective or at least less effective. Now, another idea might be to begin neutering what web pages delivered over HTTP can do. Like, how about not allowing iframes on such pages? Or how about disabling all scripting on HTTP-only sites? They would still load, but they would be grossly restricted to the sorts of old-school content that such sites often have, while potentially dangerous and abuse-prone capabilities would be absent. And this might incentivize the owners of such sites to step up to HTTPS, which, after all, is no longer difficult or expensive. You just have to want to do it. And then you can use, you know, any of the free certificates that are being offered by DigiCert or Let's Encrypt or whomever. So right. we, do, we do have a problem. Somebody got, this, got an HTTP link in front of Ahmed. He didn't, or may, and as we know, now browsers are not showing us HTTPS or P colon slash slash, right? They're, they're, they're wanting right. to simplify the URLs. Yep. So he clicked it because it wasn't HTTPS. He jumped to, he was trying to jump to a, maybe a benign HTTP site. It got mm -hmm. in that got intercepted, redirected to a malicious HTTP server, which then loaded those two iframes and compromised his phone using a chain of three still at the time active zero days, which Apple fixed in an emergency update last week. So I don't know what the solution is, but uh, as our listeners said, Gibson, you're wrong on this. And yes, <laughs> they told me so. I love that. And I got to tell you, uh, trying to make the sites less effective, I don't know if that'll be a problem either, uh, considering all the person could, all the malicious sites could do is just stick a pop-up there, similar to what we see now when you go to certain websites and say, hey, it sound, looks like you're running an ad blocker. Can you turn that off half a second? Or it looks like you're disabling this. Can you fix that just by clicking here so we can well, reload remember the page? That the only way they can do that is running script. Uh, mm -hmm. you, you can only do a pop-up if you run JavaScript. So mm -hmm. my thought was d don't have the browser allow any JavaScript on a non-HTTPS site. I mean, really neuter the site so yeah. that it cannot be malicious. All it can do is, is, is display plain vanilla content, you know, mm -hmm. old school. In that case, you know, 
sites could still remain HTTP. They just wouldn't. They have a very difficult time being malicious. Right. Right. Unfortunately, I still think that's a bit much to ask for some of the normal folks out here on these internets. Um, what else? You know, <laughs> it's hard to get. Heck, it's hard to get people to stop using the same password for everything. Now you're telling yep. them to configure their browser. Oh boy, not. I don't think it's going to happen. Man, Mr. Gibson, this has been a ton of fun and a ton of great information. I I, I really enjoyed being here with you today on Security Now, and, and it's great just to have you. Adam. Learning you more for, and more. For standing in for Leo. I, I, I appreciate that. Um, this is um, a lot of information, folks, with Mr. Gibson. So make sure you all are tuning in each and every Tuesday to Security Now. Uh, we have this this go off. It's, we're supposed to go live at about 1.30 p.m. Pacific, allegedly. Never happens. <laughs> it never happens that way. But um, so still just tune in. Just go to live.twit.tv each and every Tuesday, and you'll see us in here getting set up for the show each and every Tuesday. And for those of you that want to help support us here at Twit, you can also check us out on Club Twit and get ad-free versions of the show. Uh, just go to twit.tv slash club twit, and you'll be able to check out the different plans. We have the plan that is for 7 bucks a month that gets you ad-free versions of the show. Also gets you access to our Discord server, uh, access to other um, non-public Club Twit only content such as an AMA that I'm going to be hosting today, uh, this Thursday with Mr. Lou Maresca uh, from This Week in Enterprise Tech, as well as an interview I'm going to do next week with sci-fi author John Scalzi. That's only available in the club. So check it out, twit.tv slash club twit, seven bucks a month, gets you that and more, as well as we offer um, some single show plans too. So if you're saying I can't do $7 a month, you can do a $3 a month plan as well and just get a single show. And all of that will help support us here at Twit. Uh, Mr. Gibson has all of his show notes here on, on security now in the, in the show each and every week. He even offers a, uh, a tiny, tiny file size of the download, uh, right? Don't you have like this tiny yep, 16 k bit? It sort of sounds like this when we're doing the show. <laughs> so, so my voice won't sound as good on that one, but it's still going to be great information from Mr. Gibson. So make sure you check that out. All right, everybody. Thank you all for tuning in for, uh, for security now. Mr. Gibson, good to see you again. We shall Thanks, see buddy. you next time. See yeah, you take next care. time. Hey, I know you're super busy, so I won't keep you long, but I wanted to tell you about a show here on the Twit Network called Tech News Weekly. You are a busy person, and uh, during your week, you may want to learn about all the tech news that's fit to, well, say, not print, here on Twit. It's Tech News Weekly. Uh, Me, Micah Sargent, my co-host, Jason Howell, we talk to and about the people making and breaking the tech news, and we love the opportunity to get to share those stories with you and let the people who wrote them or broke them share them as well. So I hope you check it out every Thursday right here on Twit. Security.